people are never going to understand how critical this particular time in history is. We have $7.7 trillion worth of economic events that are going to hit America in the gut. This is An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun, President and CEO of Private Wealth Consultants, the free market voice, free market voice. of the U.S., enhancing and protecting private wealth. Gary Rathbun has over 30 years of experience in making the best choices for you to keep more of what you earn. It's life, liberty, and the pursuit of self-reliance. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. This is our country. Greetings and welcome again to An Economy of One. I am your host, Gary Rathbun. Our number here, 844 844- Two four four three seven five zero. Toll free from anywhere. If you got a comment or a question, just give us a call. Our website, an economy of one dot com, an economy of one dot com. As is our Facebook, Facebook, an economy of one. Go there, take a look at what uh, our producers put up every day, every week, and uh, see what you think. Give us some comments. Love to hear from you. A couple of things interesting happened this week. I'm going to start out with um, first has to do with uh, actually they both have to do with interest rates. But a little bit later, I want to talk about how the banks are are playing games again. And, and it's it's important that we see this early and, and see the setup that uh, they're, they're giving us. But first, let's talk about interest rates a little bit. Uh, Janet Yellen is coming out and she's dropped her word patient. Apparently, the Federal Reserve is no longer going to worry about being patient. They are going to raise interest rates. They keep drawing this line in the sand. And uh, personally, I don't think they're going to going to raise interest rates uh, this year. If they do, it might be uh, a quarter of a percent or something like that. Not a big deal. But they, they keep putting it out there. We're going to do this. We're going to do this. Now, one of the things I wanted to talk about that's very important when it comes to interest rates is you want to think of interest rates and bonds, which are highly affected by interest rates, you want to think of them as a a teeter-totter. With interest rates on one side of the teeter-totter and the value of bonds on the other side of the teeter-totter. So as interest rates go up, the value of existing bonds go down. And this is the bond bubble that they keep talking about. This is... When, when you read the headlines and they say the coming um, disaster in bonds, the coming collapse in bonds, this is what they're talking about. Interest rates go up, the value of existing bonds will go down. And it makes sense that we do that. Let's say you have a bond that's earning, I don't know, 3 4%. And new interest rates, interest rates go up, so new bonds coming out are earning 5 or 6% interest rate. Why would you pay full value for a 4% bond when you can go out on the street and buy a new bond paying 5%? So the existing bondholder at 4% has to discount, has to lower the principal of the bond so that the interest, the amount of interest, the dollar amount of interest that I receive is the same as if I'd bought the 5% bond. You with me? So as interest rates go up, value of existing bonds go down. Now, this could be extraordinarily troublesome if on your balance sheet you have hundreds of billions of dollars worth of bonds. 
as most of the banks do around the country, specifically the two big DeFeo banks. Remember those top banks that the government has deemed too big to fail? Well, they have bonds on their balance sheet, and the bonds will fluctuate according to the market if interest rates go up. So with the Federal Reserve coming out and saying, we're going to raise interest rates, banks are naturally concerned about the value of their bonds on their balance sheet going down because this will cause them to be required to raise more capital. They'll have to put more cash aside to make up for the decrease in the value of the bonds. So if you've got, I don't know, $100 billion in bonds and interest rates go up a fourth of 1%, that might cost you $20, $30 billion in cash that has to go into reserves in order to meet the Fed requirements. So if you're a bank, what do you do? You can bite the bullet, raise cash, put more money in your reserves, or you can do what only banks can do. You can reclassify those assets. And what's happening over the last year now, as as the Federal Reserve has come out and said, we're going to raise interest rates. We're going to raise interest rates sometime soon, sometime soon. Not yet. Not yet. We're going to be patient. We're going to be diligent. Um, but we are going to raise them sometime in the future. Well, the closer we get to that, the more of a concern it is for banks because those bonds will have to be marked to market, meaning they will have to be reevaluated every day based on the open market and the new interest rates. So banks over the last year have been taking those bonds on their balance sheet and reclassifying them as hold to maturity. Now, you remember I said when the interest rate goes up, the value of your bond goes down. Well, it doesn't really matter unless you want to sell it, use it as collateral, or like banks, have to market to market on your balance sheet with connections to your cash reserves. So if you hold it to maturity, if you're a bank and you hold it to maturity, you no longer have to market to market. You can ignore the movement in the principal due to the change in interest rates. Convenient, huh? Huh? So what they're doing over the last year over $260 billion of securities have been reclassified on bank balance sheets as hold to maturity. So this will prevent or allow the banks, I guess, to lock in the value of those bonds so they don't have to change their their cash reserves. Now, there's some downside to this. If a bond is classified hold to maturity, technically, technically, the bank then isn't allowed to sell the bond prior to maturity. It has to hang on to it to maturity. Now, how many of you think banks are actually going to abide by the rules should it be in their best interest in the future to sell that bond early. 
That's what I thought. Me too. I think they will absolutely change the rules or break the rules, and the regulators will let them because they don't care, really. It's all smoke and mirrors. You have to put on the appearance that you're protecting the banks and protecting the assets and protecting the the consumer. But this just throws uh, gap rules out the window. Gap is generally accepted accounting principles, and it just makes a mockery of, of those principles. You and I couldn't get away with that, no way, no how. But the big banks, too big to fail, they can get away with it. So these big banks now are moving those assets to a different classification with a stroke of a pen in order to protect their balance sheet. It allows them to use those assets at full value, even though liquidation value is significantly less. This is why you'd be interested in in looking at. By the way, I don't think that the Federal Reserve is going to raise interest rates of any significance for a long, long time. Now, a long time might be simply a year, might be a couple years. But the way the uh, the economy is at this point, I don't see them raising interest rates. There's not very much declared inflation. Unemployment is much worse than what they're telling us, and they know this. And the economy, the, the dollar is so strong that the economy couldn't withstand an even stronger dollar. And as interest rates rise, the dollar gets stronger and stronger on the international market. When we come back, we're going to talk about that strong dollar. We're going to talk about the dollar being the world's reserve currency. We touched on it last time a little bit about China forming a new bank. Well, looks like this week, Washington blinked. It's an economy of one with Gary Rathbun. Back to an economy of one with Gary Rathbun. We are back. Our number here, 844-244-3750. Toll free from anywhere. Our website, aneconomyofone.com, aneconomyofone.com. You can email me from the website. Just click on uh, email, and there I am, aneconomyofone.com. You know, now, last time, remember we talked a little bit about these headlines out there, these students saying that the world is going off the dollar standard. And here's proof. Here's proof. China is forming an alliance with all our allies and going off the dollar. It's a de-dollarization. And I told you last time, not a big deal. What they're doing is forming an infrastructure bank. It's called the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. And... Other countries were joining that bank. And what it does, it gives them an advantage in borrowing and lending money for infrastructure. It has nothing to do with the world going off the dollar standard. It's simply another bank like the World Bank 
or the IMF. Now, the World Bank and the IMF, the United States has an integral part in how that is run. And about 30, I want to say 30, 32% of the assets in those banks are owned by the United States. So it gives us a lot of sway, a lot of influence in how the bank is run, how the loans are structured, that kind of stuff. Well, China, China came out and said that over the next several decades, there's a huge need for infrastructure financing to the tune of about $57 trillion. And I told you last time, hey, I welcome the infrastructure bank. Go ahead, borrow each other's money. I'm tired of financing everybody's infrastructure and not getting paid back. We never get paid back. So let somebody else make those loans. And it, I really don't think it has anything to do with the de-dollarization in these countries. I don't think it's the first step in the world going off the dollar as the world's reserve currency. <coughs> Will that happen? Maybe. Probably. But it doesn't matter to me very much. Will it affect our country? Yeah, it will. The, the main thing we'll see in our country, if, if the world goes off the dollar standard, is it will be harder to sell our debt. It will be harder to spend huge deficits. Personally, I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that we need to stop spending money we don't have now. So if the world's appetite for our debt diminishes, will it be painful? Maybe, but I don't think it'll be fatal. And I think it's very important that we understand this. Now, what happened this week is the United States came out and itself joined the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank as a member. So this bank that everybody was saying, and not everybody, a lot of people were out there saying, this is the beginning of the end. The apocalypse is coming. This is a de-dollarization of the world. Now we're part of it. Now American dollars are into it. Did we blink? Yeah, I think so. I think the, the administration thought they could bulldog our allies, bulldog the, the current banks, the IMF and the World Bank, to overpowering this. And I think they blinked. And according to um, our Treasury, uh, United States Treasury Undersecretary for International Affairs, Nathan Sheets, came out with this lovely statement. He said the U.S. would welcome new multilateral institutions that strengthen the international financial architecture. Co-financing projects with existing institutions like the World Bank or the Asian Development Bank 
will help ensure that high-quality, time-tested standards are maintained. Maybe that's why it was formed, because those high-quality, time-tested standards uh, might not be acceptable to these countries. China alone has billions and billions and billions of dollars of capital needs for its infrastructure over the next couple of decades, hundreds of billions. So I can understand them wanting to do this. They're starting out with $50 billion. Now, to you and me, that's a lot of money. But in the reality of things, in global infrastructure financing, that's nothing. That's nothing. I also read another statement that it's good that the United States joined this bank, became a member, so that we could uh, influence civil rights, um, unhealthy debt buildups, like we have any authority on that, and environmental risks. Once again, none of this has to do with money. Now, I'm all for human civil rights. I'm all for taking care of the environment. And I'm all for controlled debt. But the United States is not the cheerleader on those. And when it comes to China and some of these other Asian countries, the environment is way down on the list. Human rights are way down on the list. And debt structure is meaningless because, you know, they've been borrowing from us and we're not getting our money back. So you don't have to pay it back. But uh, it's not the, the train wreck that the pundits would have you believe. I'm not concerned. Coming up, we got Kelsey Harkness. She's a news producer at the Daily Signal, the blog for the Heritage Foundation. Going to talk to us a little bit about Operation Choke Point. Our number here, 844-244-3750, and our website, aneconomyofone.com. I'm Gary Rathbun. We'll be right back. Gary Rathbun, An Economy of One. This is An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. We are back. Our phone number here is 844-244-3750. If you got a comment or question, want to give me a call, please feel free, toll free from anywhere. Our website, aneconomyofone.com. Joining me now is Kelsey Harkness. She's a news producer at The Daily Signal, the blog of the Heritage Foundation. She's been spending a lot of time covering and writing about Operation Choke Point. Thank you for having me. Oh, I appreciate the work you do. Uh, I read your columns every time they come out talking about Operation Choke Point. It's a, it's a uh, piece of, uh, well, well, we'll call it a piece of legislation for lack of a better term. Um, but uh, spend a couple minutes and, and tell our audience exactly what Operation Choke Point is to begin with. Um, Operation Choke Point is a program that was launched by the Justice Department in 2013 as a way to fight consumer fraud. 
they did this by pressuring banks through um, partnering with other agencies, other government agencies like the FDIC, to use their bank examiners and their regular regulatory authority to go to banks and say, hey, these are customers we think that are at high risk for fraud and you should probably not do business with them. And so what happened is it appears that a lot of completely legal business owners are being affected by Operation Choke Point because the agents in the FDIC came up with this list, the 30 industries they would target, and that list was adopted into Operation Choke Point. And on that list, we found a lot of legal and legitimate businesses like gun sellers, ammunition manufacturers, Mm. coin dealers, payday lenders, a lot of small, everyday American businesses. Okay. Now, choke point, I mean, the idea was to essentially choke off, yeah, to to prevent them from processing transactions, making deposits, getting loans, that kind of stuff. So let's just take one industry, for example. Um, I've looked at the gun industry a lot, and I've gone to a lot of gun shows and talked to people and asked what kind of banking experiences they've had. Mm-hmm. Um, in order to in order to run a business, you need a way to process customer credit card transactions. Right. Um, the way a lot of businesses do that is by using a third-party payment processor, example, that is PayPal. Um, PayPal has a blanket policy that they don't accept people who sell guns as customers. All of a sudden, in 2013, people in the gun industry say they that more and more companies were dropping them, saying they won't do business with you, even though you're doing everything legally, because their banks are telling them these industries are, are at high risk, and if you do business with them, you might face punishment, you must, might um, get audits, you might get... Uh, <laughs> Yeah. Justice Department officials showing up at your bank and asking why you're doing business with these people. Well, I mean, you know, most banks are in business at the whim, not the whim, but at the uh, regulator's uh, discretion. I mean, the regulator can come in and essentially close the door at any time for any reason. So the banks exactly. are, are real motivated to, to listen to the regulators. I think that's why we've seen very few, if any, bankers go on the record about um, what the regulators are telling them about this because their hands are tied. A lot of them, I have talked on background to a few people, a lot of them would offer their services to legal and legitimate business owners if they could, Mm -hmm. but their hands are completely being tied. You know, it's interesting that the FDIC, I mean, I've I've looked at your list that uh, Daily Signal has put out that the FDIC uh, listed these companies. And I find it interesting that they would target, you know, firearms, uh, ammunition. I mean, those are some of the most highly regulated transactions in this country anyway. I I mean, it's very hard for these people to, to commit fraud or sell to the wrong people anyway. Exactly. For gun dealers to be targeted in a program that intends to fight fraud really doesn't make much sense because if you fraudulently went out and bought a gun and didn't do the proper background checks, didn't buy from an FFL dealer, you would be committing a crime. So firearms industries is is perhaps one of the least fraudulent businesses that exist in America, yet the Justice Department seems to be encouraging banks not to do business with them. No, I mean, and I think that's where a, a lot of the Republican criticism comes in from Washington, yeah. because uh, people, a lot of uh, Republicans believe that Operation Choke Point is another example of the Obama administration bypassing the legislative process to right. further their agenda. Now, who's bringing, who's shining besides uh, you doing your reporting from a Congress standpoint, who's shining sunshine on on this? Didn't 
Didn't we have a, a couple representatives or a senator start to introduce legislation and, and uh, ask some very embarrassing questions to the uh, FDIC? <laughs> Yeah, I'd say throughout the past year, we've seen a number of different pieces of legislation uh, get introduced in an attempt to end Operation Choke Point. None of those have been successful thus far, but there okay. have been some hearings um, with the FDIC regarding their involvement in Operation Choke Point because there have been House reports that show uh, FDIC officials inserting their political and or moral agenda into their banking decisions. So uh, just yesterday, I was at a hearing in Capitol Hill on Operation Choke Point, uh, where the chair of the FDIC basically said, uh, look, we made a mistake in creating this list. We have since removed it, and we are doing what we can to um, to fix the repercussions that have come from Operation Choke Point. But uh, the problem is, is they they say they've taken all these steps to reduce the damage that has been caused by putting out this list. But I'm still getting emails to my inbox every day of people in different industries saying they're still blocked from financial services. Yeah, I I mean, in in reading your articles and and, uh, searching around, uh, I mean, some of these people have been put out of business. How do you unring that bell? I mean, how, how does how does the FDIC or the banking industry help these people get back into business and, and, and correct the mistakes they've made on this? Well, that's the sad part about Operation Choke Point is that for a lot of people, the damage is done. Um, they've already had to, you know, it, 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 I would say, you know, it's the most extreme case where they've been driven out of business. But there have been cases there. There were there were victims uh, present at yesterday's hearings mm-hmm. who said they had to sell their companies to their competitors uh, because they lost their banking relationships. And then so you have one extreme of that. And there's and the sad thing is there's really not much they can do. They're they're really stuck. Um, on the other hand, you have it causing a lot of frustration for say a gun dealer who keeps getting bumped from payment processor to payment processor. And when he can't collect money, he can't restock his inventory. And, you know, it it can cause a lot of stress and financial insecurity. Well, and and in some of your examples, um, they're getting charged exorbitant fees. I mean, the bank will process them, but it's it's just not worthwhile to pay a a 20 plus percent processing fee on a transaction. So it's... It, it, I mean, that's the question, ways, you know, yeah. And, and, you know, we do have a second amendment right in America. And so you wonder why um, these, this industry doesn't have the right to do banks. And yet from the same justice department, um, we've seen them basically green light banks to do business with mar- people who sell marijuana. Right. 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 <laughs> no problem there. But now, what came out of the hearings? I mean, do you do you see? I mean, I do you see the the FBI, uh, FBI FDIC uh, physically changing their rules and and uh, uh, being held accountable, or is this kind of smoke and mirrors for the press and and uh, for the audience? And off everybody goes to their their merry way as before. I think it's a little mix of both. I mean, to the FDIC's defense, they have changed a number of their policies, and they now say that banks have to put it in writing if they're going to terminate a relationship with a customer. And they say they do not discourage any sort of uh, business owners who are in legal enterprises um, from being able to access um, their depository institutions. 
but one of the biggest issues that came up at yesterday's hearings is that these reports about um, what the FDIC admits were mistakes made within the agency and um, related to Operation Choke Point, they've known for two years the employees who did this. It's public information that's out there in House reports. Those employees are still happily employed in, in the FDIC. So that was a big question. Why has no one been fired for putting out this list and for inserting their own, their own moral opinions into their, into their banking uh, regulatory job? Well, you know, at the very least, you'd think they'd transfer them over to the IRS with those those <laughs> level of skills, don't you think? <laughs> no. yeah. it, I mean, it, not, no one's even been demoted in the week. Know. You know, it, it's crazy. You you wonder if this happened at a at a private company. You know, they probably wouldn't stand for this. But right. in Washington D.C., uh, things are slow. Walk. The chairman says he's waiting for um, an IG report to come out. Uh, I guess, to really get to the bottom of what happened. But the emails are out there. Um, I've done so- several reports on them where I copied and pasted the emails into my work. I would leave it up to the viewer to decide um, sure. whether another investigation is really necessary for another taxpayer investigation necessary for this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, uh, Operation Choke Point, uh... In, I, I, in the years it's been in existence since 2013, just a couple of years, um, they have settled what two cases, two or three cases. There have been, yep, there have been three cases. Two, two of the cases were just settled uh, probably two or three weeks ago, just before the hearing, which uh, was conveniently timed. Let's sure. just say that. And then there's been a third case that came out uh, right at the beginning of when Operation Choke Point got kicked off. And I think that what a lot of lawmakers um, who are criticizing Operation Choke Point are saying is that we want you to go after fraud. And we, you know, in, in these cases that you found, you know, they, they were taking advantage of Americans and they should right. be held accountable. But whether or not um, the strategy you're using is working and worth the collateral damage that it appears to be causing is is really questionable. Yeah, I mean, that's a lot of authority or a lot of power to have over a small business owner. I mean, we're not talking, you know, huge business owners that can afford the legal uh, fight, that kind of stuff. We're talking about mom and pop shops and small businesses, the backbone of this country that create the jobs. Well, Kelsey, I really appreciate you spending some time with us. Appreciate your work. You're doing great, great stuff on uh, the Daily Signal with the Heritage Foundation. And uh, we're going to keep following this. Hope I can tap you on the shoulder again. Yeah, I'd love to come back. Thanks for your interest. Be well. Thanks a lot. We've been speaking with Kelsey Harkness, news producer at the Daily Signal, blog of the Heritage Foundation. Our phone number here is 844-244-3750. Our website in Economy One. I'm Gary Rathbun. We'll be right back. Gary Rathbun, an Economy of One. Now back to an Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. We are back. Our number here, 844-244-3750. And our website, aneconomyofone.com. Look us up on Facebook. Facebook is an economy of one. Catchy, huh? Kind of all clicks in together, doesn't it? Anyway, 
Good news this week out of New Mexico. Our affiliates there will be excited. Apparently this week, Republican uh, Governor Susana Martinez signed a key piece of legislation. This is a groundbreaking bill to abolish civil asset forfeiture. We've talked about this several times uh, on this show. We've talked to John Whitehead, author of the book, A Government of Wolves. And, and civil af- asset forfeiture, for those of you that don't remember, is that there are governments and police departments around the country that will stop you, search your car, search your home, whatever, and they will confiscate assets. Oftentimes, people are not charged, but their assets are confiscated. And police departments are allowed to keep that. So if you get stopped for whatever, and you've got $10,000 in your car in cash, 20000 in cash, they will assume that you are a drug dealer and up to no good, and they will confiscate that money. And then it's up to you to hire attorneys and fight and get your money back. We've seen situations like in Philadelphia where an adult child was living in his parents' house, got in trouble for, I think, $40 worth of marijuana, pled out, community service, police come along, confiscate the entire parents' home. They had to spend thousands of dollars in legal fees to keep their home. Police departments around the country have seized, I think in the last year, something like $80 billion worth of stuff. And they're justifying it by saying, uh, we need this to help fund our police department. This is part of our, our budget. Well, several states around the country don't allow civil asset forfeiture. Fortunately for me, Ohio is one of those, our home state. But New Mexico... Just passed a bill that says that uh, now New Mexico police must convict you of a crime and prove your property was used in the crime before you forfeit it to the authorities. Also, any money gained from that property will now go to the state's general fund instead of police budgets thereby taking away the incentive for police to take assets away from citizens. Good job, New Mexico. I hope all states adopt this type of legislation to abolish civil asset forfeiture because it's just wrong. It's it, you, Your private property is being confiscated without any due process. Some of these counties and departments get around it by charging your inanimate asset with a crime. Your money has been charged with a crime. Therefore, we're keeping it. Your car has been charged with a crime. Well, how does a car defend itself? It doesn't. That's why they do it. Now, I'd like to think that uh, us talking about it on Economy One helped the overall conversation, helped the awareness to abolish civil asset forfeiture. 
I know that that's very, very minor, but there are a lot of good reporters out there, a lot of good journalists, a lot of good authors, a lot of good radio hosts, TV hosts that are shining light on this injustice, and that's what's bringing it to the forefront. So good job, New Mexico. Keep up the work, all of us, and let's get this civil asset forfeiture crap abolished in all 50 states. Now, last time we was together, we talked a little bit about some of the characteristics that children need in order to succeed. And you remember the, the research we looked at said that children who have chores, children that do jobs after school and on the weekends and that kind of stuff, develop better self-esteem, better sense of accomplishment, and are more successful as adults. And I agree with that. I think it's terrific. Well, I saw some additional research this week that also talked about the network, the peripheral relationships that these same families have. Most of the time, there are two-parent families. And a two-parent family will have more relationships, more supportive relationships than a single parent. Also, highly educated households generally have relationships with other highly educated professionals. Now, I know that doesn't sound real profound. It doesn't sound very earth-shattering. It seems kind of obvious. But it's important to look at that kids growing up in very poor neighborhoods that don't have jobs, that don't have the support system, that don't have two parents, that sit and play video games all night long, will grow up without the relationships they need to help them to the next level. I mean, you think about it, a, a woman who's an attorney married to an engineer or a teacher or a doctor or whatever, they're likely to hang around other attorneys, other engineers, other teachers, other doctors. And those relationships will help each family's children as they grow up and develop. Our website an economyofone.com, an economyofone.com, and our toll-free number here for the show is 844-244-3750. I want you to have a great day. Be an individual. Be self-reliant. Be an economy of one. I'm Gary Rathman. We'll see you next time. This is our country. The views expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect the views of this station. Listeners should consult their own financial advisors or conduct their own due diligence before making any financial decisions. Private Wealth Consultants is an SEC-registered investment advisor.